So I'm going to call foul on Justin Hayes' pick for this review. This is two movies. I know it looks like one movie, but it's two movies. But I guess I'll break the rules just this once, because I'm nice like that. The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. The 2015 version of Fantastic Four, or fan Stick, as it's unaffectionately referred to by fans, is the third attempt at translating the FF to screen, and the fourth film in total. And fourth time was definitely not the charm. This one falls in the category of infamously bad, and is the beginning of an unsettling recent trend of superhero movies that were conceptualized and filmed as a different product than the one that was finally released, and of which audiences will almost certainly never see the intended product. It's only been three years, but it feels like a lot longer, because it was legendary before it was even released, for its maybe unprecedented level of controversy and behind-the-scenes turmoil. Certainly unprecedented for superhero movies. The firing of Richard Donner by the Salkinds was a pretty juicy affair, and this is nothing compared to the constant insanity at Warner Brothers surrounding Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and Justice League. It's hard to believe that the headbutting and studio meddling is finished over there at the time of this posting, but this captured the attention and imagination of the comic book and movie geek world, and it's right up there with Suicide Squad and Justice League as movies I'm desperate to see the director's original cut for and which I'm sure will never see the light of day. People found this such a fascinating failure that if Fox put Trank's original cut in the theater now, it would make more money than this version did. I guarantee it. That must be the other reason it feels like it's been forever since this was released. This kind of thing has, sadly, gotten a lot more commonplace since then. There have always been examples of movies, like Fox's Daredevil, that were screwed with by studio executives and clueless producers, and were clearly missing scenes or scenes were jumbled around in order to appeal to the widest audience possible, for the sake of pacing and runtime and to prioritize action, etc., at the expense of telling a coherent story. Superman 2 has that problem, and that was decades ago. But we're seeing a lot more movies now that start as one thing and wind up as a totally different thing. It was a big deal to finally get the Donner cut of Superman 2, because we knew Donner's vision for it was such a stark contrast to the sometimes goofy movie Richard Lester made, giving Superman random powers as a cheap device to move the story forward, and with no real connective tissue from the first movie to the second, except that Zod and his minions are established in the first act of movie one. But even though Lester's version is different, it's not insanely tonally uneven, and that is a similar situation to Fan Forstick, where a director starts making his movie with his vision, and then someone above him starts micromanaging, and eventually runs him off completely. Donner was fired outright, while Joss Trank was never officially given the boot, and Fox pretended like they were behind his vision all along. But by the end, another director or other directors were brought in to do massive reshoots. $20 million worth, enough extra money added to the budget that it's probably why 3D post-conversion plans were scrapped, and Trank was apparently locked out of the editing room. His name is still on the movie, but it's not entirely his movie. It's maybe not mostly his movie, although that's hard to say. There are a lot of conflicting reports and rumors about what Trank was trying to do with this movie and all the details about why it turned out the way it did. 
I don't want to talk about every single claim and all the he said, she said stuff, or about how he was allegedly unprofessional and verbally abusive to actors on set, particularly Kate Mara, who he didn't want for Sue Storm, but she was apparently forced on him by the studio, or about how he allegedly trashed a house or a hotel room or something he was put up in, and Fox had to personally apologize to the owners. I'm here to review a movie, but it's impossible not to at least acknowledge all the turmoil because that affected what the movie turned into so much. It's a lot more baffling if you don't know that, and I can't analyze this story with a seemingly why on earth would you do it like that attitude when we have at least some idea as to why this mess happened. I'm a pretty firm believer in the death of the artist, at least to a point. A work of art should generally stand on its own, and any intentions it has should be well communicated by the piece itself. It shouldn't be a supplemental thing to anything else if it's meant to be a singular work, especially if it's a commercial work meant for mass consumption and clearly wants to be accessible to a wide swath of the population. The trouble with a movie like this is that I can't take it on its own terms because it doesn't have terms. It doesn't know what it is, and that's because it's not one person's vision, or the focused vision of collaborative artists who are all on the same page. Fantforstic is a Jekyll Hyde movie. It's bipolar. It's the North and South before the Civil War. It should be one single thing, but there's a battle being waged within it. Unlike in the Civil War, though, nobody wins by the end. It never finds a definitive identity, good or bad, and every entity involved, including the consumer, loses. So Fanforstic isn't really a movie. So this will be fun to review. It's the artifact left over from a war between a director and a studio. It's like trying to live in a city after it's been bombed. Everything's broken, and nothing works right, and there's an ominous and uncomfortable mood hanging over the place. This would have been the most appropriate thing in history to add the subtitle Aftermath to, and it's not even a sequel to anything. It's a curious relic of the event of a bunch of people who had a horrible experience making a movie. I will talk about why a lot of the story doesn't work, and I'll talk about the stuff I like about it, as usual. But it would be a mistake to approach this like any other movie. The thing Fox finally put out isn't what anyone was trying to make. It's a complete salvage operation. Like it was put together with parts somebody pulled out of the Grimm family junkyard. The production context is really important to understand with this movie, because without it, it's ultra-confounding. Why would anybody make a movie like this? The answer is nobody would. No one was happy with how it turned out, not the director, not the writers, and directors who apparently tried to fix it, no one. We know for sure Simon Kinsberg was involved in rewrites, and he may have been responsible for a lot of the reshooting. There are conflicting reports about Matthew Vaughn also as a damage control director, and he is listed as a producer, but that doesn't confirm anything for sure. And I think he was producing from the beginning, but it doesn't matter. All these fingers in the pie only poked it full of holes and made it more unfit for human consumption. I'm not saying everything here is horrible and nothing works at all. I'm saying that the things I like are a lot of disparate elements that never come together to make anything solid or substantial, and that it feels exactly like what it is, a product that was too far along to get scrapped, but that no one in the production or the executives at the studio really wanted anyone to see. Fox didn't allow critics to screen the movie beforehand. The actors gave really awkward interviews interviews, clearly disappointed in the final product and disenfranchised by the whole experience. And Fox was in panic mode as soon as they started messing with Trank's film because they knew they were stuck with a tone, a concept, and a bunch of footage they had no way to scrap. I don't think Fox actually thought this would work. Maybe they thought it would work better than it did, but I think it became a game of just making some kind of semblance of a movie that wasn't a chronicle sequel 
which is how they described Trank's cut, and kind of how Trank himself described it, going as far as to say that to him, it was a continuation of that movie, and that it wouldn't completely tick off fans of the source material. If Fox could have afforded to, I really think they would have happily done the same thing to this that was done to the Roger Corman Fantastic Four, refuse to release it, and then destroy all the negatives. I'll describe the situation continuing on with the pie analogy. Because I like pie, and because I haven't used enough food metaphors in the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind yet. Fox commissioned Joss Trank to make a pie, and they wanted it to be like his last pie. We'll call it rhubarb. But then Fox came to find out Fantastic Four fans don't like rhubarb. They think a Fantastic Four pie should taste like cherry. Or, no, let's go with blueberry. You know, for the costumes. But the pie was already in the oven, and Fox made Trank start baking it way too late, so there was no starting over. So they scraped off the rhubarb, but they couldn't get rid of it completely, and they were stuck with a regular crust, when the fans wanted a cookie crust. But there was no getting rid of that, so they just injected some cookie dough into the crust they had already, and hoped it would all work out in the end. It was too much of what it started out as, mixed with too much of something else entirely. Or, I don't know, maybe rhubarb and blueberry go great together. I've never tried it. The way Fox handled Fan 4-Stick, after fans got details about what the story was going to be and there was a massive backlash, is exactly the way Paramount handled their first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which came out just a year before this. The filmmaker wanted to try something radically different, and the studio was fine with it until an uproarious online fan base made them second-guess their director and writers, because they had reason to worry the built-in audience wouldn't come or would ruin general attendance with bad word of mouth. That movie was at least more coherent, less stiff, and less uneven than this by the end, but both are diluted and probably somewhat lobotomized versions of the original, to say nothing of the quality or merit of that vision. It also reminds me of the other remake-slash-attempted reboot I've reviewed so far on the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind, Robocop, which just came out also a year before this. So it's become a big problem, and it was getting really bad then. That also desperately wanted to go its own way, but was afraid to be too different from what the hardcore fan base liked about the property. But it's more like fan stick even in execution. Ninja Turtles was big, dumb action. It was uninspired, cookie-cutter, and was riddled with plot holes. But there was at least something for someone to enjoy there. Both Robocop and fan stick are dull, have casts that look bored or are just going through the motions, and both have science fiction ideas we're supposed to be deeply impressed with and awestruck by, but they're more routine than the movie lets on. I don't know as much about the backgrounds of those movies as I do this one, but I doubt if the blame belongs just as much to the director in the studio with those as it seems to with this. It strikes me as a 50-50 split. Yes, Josh Trank wasn't mature enough to make a big movie like this. He let the pressure get to him, and he was extremely unprofessional and rude to his cast and crew, from a lot of accounts, and he stopped doing his job, sometimes not coming to set, and even showing up high and drunk. Again, according to people who were there. He didn't handle the stress right while he was making the movie, and he handled it really badly afterward. The combative and classless way he responded to allegations and fan complaints on Twitter and beyond. But Fox shouldn't have hired him for this project in the first place, and they should have been more reasonable in their expectations. It appears that Fox yo-yoed Josh Trank around. They treated him like a golden boy who could do no wrong and make him think they were going to let him make whatever kind of movie he wanted to with no interference. They hired a director without a lot of experience, and it was clearly lacking in maturity. Apparently, there were a lot of problems on the Chronicle set, too, despite the fact that that came together quite nicely by the end. 
Other people finished that movie for Trank 2, apparently. So he just wasn't the right guy for this. And he was a director who had no interest in making a Fantastic Four movie, it sounds like. He wanted to do more Chronicle. Fox essentially hired him to make Chronicle 2 with Fantastic Four characters, and then were appalled when that's what they got. They also strung him along forever until the rights were about to revert back to Marvel, so they had to finally stop dragging their feet and make something. It sounds like Fox only made a movie to make sure their competitor, Marvel Studios, couldn't get their hands on this property and embarrass them. Which is funny, because they couldn't have predicted at the time that in three years, they'd all be under the same roof anyway. But they also didn't want the movie to trank. I mean tank, because movies like this are expensive. So even though Fox didn't seem to care what the movie actually was, and if it looked anything like the Fantastic Four, they suddenly had to care, or they risked ruining their bottom line, from their perspective. What Fox didn't really understand is that most Marvel fans were so happy with what Marvel Studios was doing, and had so little faith in Fox's ability to make a great FF movie, they didn't care much what Marvel made. They didn't like that Marvel's first family was missing from their overall pretty credible Marvel universe, and thought Marvel deserved those characters back and characters that went with the FF package the MCU was sorely lacking, like Galactus. It still feels weird seeing the Guardians movies and Infinity War finally getting into the cosmic stuff, and there's no mention of Silver Surfer. So the deck is stacked against you to some degree anyway. That's not to say the movie couldn't win some fans over or appeal to a different audience, but I'd argue that Trank, to some degree, kind of had the right idea, even if he didn't seem to care about the roots of the property much more than the studio did. Use the general ideas and characterizations of the Fantastic Four, but create something new and way different from what the MCU would do with it. If it's really good, enough people might like it for what it is that they'll support it, even begrudgingly. Well, it's not what I want, but I can't deny the great experience I had. I have that with the 09 Star Trek movie to some degree, which is a better idea. Make a movie that holds together and watches like a competent effort, even if it's everything the vitriolic, screaming online comic readers said they didn't want, or try to force a thing that doesn't look at all like what fans said they wanted into that. It's tantamount to putting heads on action figures they don't belong to and saying that's who they are. I don't know if Josh Trank's movie, Untouched by the Studio, would have been great, like he, of course, said it would. He said it would have gotten great reviews. Who knows? The actors don't look happy in the scenes he shot, and I tend to believe the stories of his being so controlling on set, he told them when to breathe. But I doubt it would have been as tonally all over the place and so weirdly paced as this. Even if it wasn't a Fantastic Four movie at all, Fox would probably have avoided a lot of ridicule and a 9% Rotten Tomatoes score if they kept that we-don't-care-as-long-as-we-keep-the-rights attitude if they were just hands-off. I have a theory about the title. I don't know if I'm right about this. If I am, it perfectly encapsulates how Fox did the exact opposite in trying to appease fans and general audiences with every aspect of this movie. Even though Fox wanted to make the fans less angry, they also had a movie with an identity crisis. They had to sell it more serious and adult because that's what it looks like. So I think they had somebody design a logo to minimize the perceived hokiness of the title as much as possible. The film is technically called Fantastic Four, but the title is just the word fantastic with a four in the middle, almost like they don't want to say it out loud for fear of someone snickering under his breath. 
And it ends up looking so silly to people, that's exactly what they do, to the point where they pronounce the four in the Fantastic. What did they think people would do? You have three movies out there now called Fantastic Four. People will always look for some way to distinguish them. Some people refer to the new Halloween movie as Halloween H40. No one calls Star Trek 09 just Star Trek because it's confusing. You're just asking for it, Fantforstic, and to make it worse, the movie's really bad, so that's just more fuel for the fire. Oh look, they even screwed up the title. Now I'm going to suggest something totally radical. This is admittedly an idea I only think anyone would have in hindsight, and I have no idea if it would actually work. But if Fox somehow could have decided releasing this as a Fantastic Four film was suicide with the fan base, without the fan base knowing anything about it somehow, it was stuff like Doctor Doom having a different name and being a hacktivist blogger guy that made people freak out online. What if you pulled a Cloverfield and released this movie without anybody knowing anything about it? Like you didn't tell people it was a Fantastic Four movie. Obviously, because the FF are recognizable characters, you couldn't keep it a secret the whole movie, like the twist in Split. But could Fox have gotten away with hyping up this dark, mysterious science fiction thing with a lot of viral marketing and cryptic trailers, and then try to ease the audience into a dramatically different take on the Fantastic Four? It would have been insanely risky, but it couldn't have turned out worse than it did, especially if the movie was solid. One of the biggest things it had working against it, as I've said, is the title, and that it's Fox making it. One of the biggest things it had working against it, as I've said, is the title, and I don't mean fan stick I mean Fantastic Four, and that it's Fox making it. Since then, Fox has been releasing big, risky things that might have seemed counterintuitive, like Deadpool and Logan, but Days of Future Past could have been a complete train wreck, with so many characters and moving parts and time travel and trying to make a sequel to two franchises simultaneously. Hard to believe the same studio made this and those other great envelope-pushing superhero movies. I'd go so far as to say Fox has done a lot to help stave off superhero fatigue by making fresh movies that feel nothing like a Marvel Studios film and aren't afraid to be for a more niche audience. And I realize this movie has maybe had its own share of problems, as speculated by how far it's been pushed back and by its own battery of reshoots, but New Mutants is supposed to be a bona fide superhero horror film. So I don't know, a sleeper FF movie with a horror bent could have worked. Might have worked better after Deadpool and Logan, but if it was confident and interesting, that surprise could have seemed really creative and smart, and the word of mouth could have been great for it. You know, if they'd thought of it. I know, I know, I'm this far in and I haven't even started analyzing the movie, but I sort of have. I had to talk about why it's barely a movie before I could talk about it as a movie. I told you all the reasons it's so freaking weird, so Frankenstein together. I wanted to get that out of the way so now I can just talk about this weird thing we have and I don't have to constantly qualify things with speculation and confusion. It's a stitching together of a bunch of different films because no one made it together, which is kind of ironic for a movie with a real heavy-handed, tacked-on teamwork message right at the end. Let's start with all the stuff that works. I don't mind the darker tone, the muted color palette, the rougher character origins, or that at its core, this is a body horror film, until it degenerates into typical action schlock at the end. I really don't. I think that's a fine take on the Fantastic Four, and there's plenty of precedent for it in the comics. In Stan Lee's first issue, the four are horrified at first at what's happened to them. Because you would be. It would be the scariest thing in the world to suddenly be on fire, or a rock monster. One of Trank's major influences was The Fly. It's a good place to go with this. It's about a group of scientists trying to make major strides in their field, wanting to explore the unknown. 
who get in over their head and pay for their carelessness when nature strikes back and transforms them into something hideous. And then, when they learn they can continue to function as human beings, they have an opportunity to turn a negative into a positive. That's classic Stan Lee stuff. It's Spider-Man and the Hulk rolled into one. You get powers through irresponsibility, and then you learn to use them responsibly. This movie reminds me a lot of the Lost in Space movie reboot from the 90s, which was also about both the wonders and horrors of science and the unknown. Dark for the sake of dark is never a good idea. Like, a thing needs to be the opposite of what people think of to be successful if it hasn't worked in the past. But Fantastic Four isn't inherently a wacky comedy, either. There are a lot of FF stories like that. There are also plenty of FF stories that are chilling to the bone. And this movie came out right after Jonathan Hickman's comic run, which would have been the perfect time to try something like this. That book was moody and weird and sometimes pulpy and filled with big, frightening cosmic ideas. There was that sense of wonder, but there was also a lot of terror. Science is scary. I say this a lot, but it's like the Man of Steel problem. You can make a dark Superman movie, you just don't need to make Superman what's dark about it. It's all about balance. Life is all about comedy and tragedy, constantly battling each other, like the tones and ideas in this movie. You can start from a bleaker-looking place, and that's appropriate for where some of these characters are in their lives right now. We have a cast of mostly outcast geniuses who keep to themselves, know they have great potential, but can't get anyone to see them for who they really are. Reed is an inventor who no one takes seriously. Ben gets picked on as a kid and doesn't have any friends until Reed comes along, so they're outcasts together. Johnny is a brilliant engineer and mechanic who gets himself into trouble because he wants to be allowed to go his own way and not have to follow in his father's footsteps, like his sister. Sue is isolated from other people because they're too predictable to her. All she sees is patterns, math. Sue is unintentionally cold, like a Vulcan, because all she sees is cause and effect. And Victor is an outcast by choice, a would-be revolutionary who doesn't trust authority and sees corruption everywhere, who can't decide if the world is even worth saving because it seems so far gone. So it makes sense that from that perspective, we don't have a bright and shipper-looking movie. As long as it's not cynical, totally dour all the way through, and completely humorless, there's nothing wrong with that. This is about the public perspective of what the Fantastic Four are. Again, I've read FF comics that look like this, and are no less Fantastic Four. Sure, they embrace the absurd comic stuff more, and they're more creative with the out-there ideas. I'm not saying this movie, as is, ultimately does a great job of that, but I also don't think the look or the attitude, at least in the first half, is the problem. And it's pretty clear that the first half is a lot more indicative of the movie Trank was making than most of what's in the second. Uninitiated viewers have been burned by the Fantastic Four and understandably think they know what FF is. I constantly hear people, both online and in casual conversation, say that it's time to put the Fantastic Four to bed permanently. Because it obviously just can't be translated to screen. The concept is hokey, the powers are silly, and there's just no story there. I've talked to folks who don't even want the MCU to try it because they think it's impossible. And of course that's what people think. It's been translated poorly with three different incarnations. Although I don't think the Tim Story movie is a total waste, it's cornier than I would have liked, and there's hardly a story in that movie, but there was room to grow and mature. And unfortunately, Rise of the Silver Surfer didn't deliver on that. But just because it hasn't been done well so far doesn't mean it's just impossible to adapt. None of the biggest issues with any of these movies is inherent in the concept. You can make anything work, you just have to make it work. 
If you'd seen a terribly rendered, unfunny, badly acting talking tree and raccoon three times, you'd say the same thing. But Guardians worked the first time. Ant-Man doesn't seem like the most big-screen-worthy superhero, but those movies are successful. And I hear regular moviegoers say that it's wrong to make the FF anything but cheesy cartoon characters and to say they can't be translated to screen. I get the argument. If you do anything else, it's not the FF, but it doesn't work, so don't even bother. But I don't agree that the Fantastic Four are wacky Saturday morning cartoon characters at their core, or that you have to lose the levity and fun if you make it more serious. I was intrigued when I saw the first trailer for Fan Four Stick, and I think a lot of people were, and people who don't like or appreciate the Fantastic Four so far. It did look mysterious and like a real science fiction film. It didn't look horribly bleak or depressingly violent. It looked like a film about explorers exploring the unknown, which is Fantastic Four. If it didn't suck, it would have won a lot of those people over. But because it cemented the reputation of this property, it's remained popular to say Fantastic Four can't be done on the big screen. I think it's important to remember that the same studio has produced and or released every one of these, and arguably always more to hang on to the license than because it really believes in the property. That should tell you something. If it has to be another origin, I like doing something different with it. The premise is fine. Reed, with the help of Sue Storm and her father, builds an interdimensional portal. It's treated like a moon landing or a Wright Brothers movie. We've broken a major scientific barrier, and our protagonists want to be the first ones to experience it, because it was their work that made it happen. And being reckless is what gives them their nightmarish transformation, which the government and the private corporation that funded them wants to take advantage of. There is a story there, and it's not just a retread of the 05 movie. Or it shouldn't be. It weirdly does end up being similar in some ways, but I'll talk about that later. The problem is not at all in the setup or the ideas the movie looks like it's going to explore. I like the characters on paper just fine. There are clear arcs to be had and interesting places to go with all of them. Their motivations and hang-ups are simple enough and related enough all five of these principal characters could reasonably have opportunities for change and learn something about themselves in the film. This cut forgets about the setup for most of them, rendering a lot of the time we spend developing them at the beginning pointless. But none of it's bad. I like the cast just fine. None of the performances are great, but I've seen most of these people in other movies, and I know it's not their fault. There are flashes of personality, and occasionally maybe even of some excitement to be making this movie in certain places, most of it early, but usually they're all planks of wood. I want to argue that that's the tone of the movie and the kinds of characters they're playing, that they aren't droning robots without any emotion, but that it's a dry-witted film about socially awkward people who don't really know how to act around each other and who are all, with the exception of Johnny, introverted. If these were the performances Trank wanted, then that's probably what he was trying to do, but it doesn't come naturally to anyone. They feel poorly directed before they feel like bad actors, and they often feel like they're giving the same performance. Even Toby Kebbell as Von Doom. Michael B. Jordan could have been a great Johnny Storm, but he's forced to act so reserved all the time. And if he brought the energy we usually see from him, he'd overpower everyone around him and take over the movie. It is bizarre to think only three years have passed since this was released, with Michael B. Jordan now at A-list status and one of the most highly sought-after actors in Hollywood. It's strange watching the Creed movies in Black Panther and believing this is the same guy. He's just not allowed to perform. Maybe that's the better way to put it. The performances aren't bad. Often, they're hardly performances. But I also think there's a lot of potential in Reed and Sue's awkward dance around each other. I like how subtle their chemistry is, and I do see flashes of actual chemistry. 
I don't really mind that there's not a romance in the movie, though I might have expected them to have more screen time and get closer to it by the end, even if it's not an outright love story. And it's weird that Sue and Reed, if this franchise had gotten sequels, like it almost did, even after this failure, weirdly, are apart for a whole year where she's mad at him for leaving, and at some point later they would still get married and have a family. That is some weird baggage in your FF origin. And Reggie Cathy, who I love in everything I've seen him in, is a really cool pick for Franklin Storm. He also feels somewhat stifled, but he gives the most human performance in the movie. And oddly, he's the character I understand the most, even though he's not one of the main protagonists and he dies in the third act. Storm is the eternal optimist, the man who believes understanding the world around him can save it, who wants to be responsible with his research and use it for the betterment of mankind believes in his children, who are brilliant and who he taught to believe in the same things, and who thinks everyone, like Victor, is good deep down and deserve a second chance. He's also the most complex character in the film. He wants his son to be like him, and he's accidentally pushed him away. That's a complicated relationship that works, but like everything in this movie, we don't do enough with it. Storm isn't trying to hold his son back or be unsupportive. He doesn't mean to tell him what he has to do with his life, but at the same time, he knows what Johnny is capable of and doesn't think he's living up to his potential. Johnny is too hard on his dad, and he isn't doing the right thing by him, lying to him about how he got in the wreck at the beginning in the street race and totaling a car his dad paid for. And Storm overcompensates, always lecturing Johnny like one of his students instead of treating him like his son. Both men are right, and both men are wrong. That's a more interesting and deeper way to translate the hothead trait. So what else do I like? As I alluded to earlier, all the horror stuff. The movie doesn't showcase the wonder of Discovery enough to balance it and make me appreciate what it's really trying to do, mostly because the other dimension is a barren wasteland, an early Earth in the first throes of major evolution, and so the only thing there is to explore is bleak and depressing looking. Plus, we never learn anything about the only thing that's there except for rocks, the green glowing energy goo. But I like that there are consequences to read Victor, Ben, and Johnny getting drunk and being stupidly impulsive. I usually don't like this kind of thing, and I even complained about it in a spoiler cast, but given the consequences and given how desperate they all are to get recognition for their accomplishment, I buy it more on a second viewing. Taking that ill-advised trip wrecks their whole lives, and it's genuinely disturbing when they realize what's happened to them, especially Johnny on fire. That's my favorite moment in the movie, Reed waking up and looking in horror at what he's done to his friends. The movie doesn't outright blame him personally, and he doesn't talk about feeling guilty. I am admittedly maybe projecting that onto this scene, but the thing is mad at Reed for his being a big horrible rock monster later. I like this exchange. Does it hurt? I'm used to it. And it legitimately is Reed's fault because Ben wanted to go back in the Dimension Hopping Shuttle and Reed pressured them all to keep going. So I want to think that's why we're getting the oh my god what happened to you scene from Reed's perspective specifically. I keep wanting to jump into criticisms. I have so many, and I will. But I just want to make sure I've exhausted every positive thing I can think of before I human torch this thing. Um, I like that if we have to be in one location most of the movie, it's not a forest like in Rise of the Silver Surfer. I like Doom's boomy villain voice okay. It sounds a little like Kylo Ren, but Force Awakens wasn't out yet. I like that getting all the main characters together isn't ultra convenient. Likewise, I like that in Act 2, 
which is where the third act would usually be because this movie only has two acts, Reed doesn't conveniently find the thing at exactly the same time as he shows up when Sue has figured out where Reed is. We see Reed looking for Ben, and I really thought that after a whole year, they were both going to find each other on the same day. A lot of other things are convenient or contrived about that part, but not that. Yay. I may think of more things I like. I'll bring them up as they come to me. For now, I want to talk about the weirdest thing about this movie. And no, I'm not talking about whatever is going on with a big energy beam in the sky at the end. I've rewatched that scene four times, one for every hero in this movie, and I still don't know what they're all doing that ultimately takes out Doctor Doom. It's like Silver Surfer flying into Galactus and killing him with his own powers somehow. Except this is worse because I'm seeing what happens and I still don't know. But that's not the weirdest thing in the movie. Neither is Sue Storm's hair constantly changing, so we'll know precisely what's reshot and what Trank did. At least when she's in frame. And neither is the thing not wearing pants. Okay, maybe it is that. I never get used to that. It makes me ask questions I don't want to ask. Which I'm not going to, because this is a family show. Unless I'm reviewing Kick-Ass 2. The weirdest thing in the movie is the one-year time jump. That in and of itself isn't necessarily crazy. Maybe a year passes in the story where nothing important happens in the interim, but everything after that is related to and an extension of what we started with. But it's strange because it marks a clear separation of two totally different stories. It feels like I'm watching a movie and then the sequel to that movie in the same movie. It's like a vignette film with only two vignettes, but that are directly connected. The first is a Twilight Zone episode. It's a slow-paced, minimalistic story, which is crazy to think, considering how much this film costs to make, about four scientists and a kid from a junkyard who wind up horribly altered in a trip to another dimension that they shouldn't have taken, Planet Zero. Wait, Planet Zero? Why not just call it the Negative Zone? That's a Fantastic Four thing. And it even evokes the Phantom Zone from Superman when Victor sarcastically suggests sending their worst criminals there. But anyway, I guess if this was a Twilight Zone episode, it probably wouldn't have been another dimension because the Twilight Zone is already kind of another dimension. So to go from one to another inside the Twilight Zone would be a little loopy. But I don't know. I haven't seen all of those. Maybe there is one like that. Leave me a comment if you know everything about the Twilight Zone and I'm wrong about this. But I digress. If every person watching this movie didn't know they were going to a film about people who get superpowers from a big cosmic accident, that would be the big twist at the end of that story. That's where it ends. You guys wanted to be famous more than you wanted to save the world, unlike Franklin Richards, so this is what you get. It's almost like a Greek tragedy, really. This kind of thing happened in Greek mythology all the time. Prometheus tied to a rock to get his liver eaten out every day by vultures because he gave humanity fire, or Icarus flying too close to the sun. When you mess with things you don't understand, or you act with an authority not earned, bad things happen to you. Again, I don't know if anyone would have gone along with this, but forget that that's not really a big O. Henry surprise because we know these characters are supposed to turn invisible and get stretchy powers, etc. Because that's, you know, the premise and an origin that doesn't really need a story to tell. Really, if I was going to do Fantastic Four, especially as many times as it's been attempted, I would start in the middle of Fantastic Four status quo, like The Incredible Hulk or Spider-Man Homecoming. But that first half of the movie, as the story for a whole film, would be great for that crazy idea I had earlier. Flesh these characters out, maybe develop them such that the powers they get at the end maybe reflect their personalities in creative ways, which we're not really doing in this movie. And I think it really could have been the whole movie. 
Maybe it ends with government doctors experimenting on them, and the horror they got themselves into continues. It's just a really scary origin story, but you don't get to any of the superhero stuff yet, because it does play as one solid tale all by itself, albeit a super depressing cautionary tale. I'm sure that's too art house movie for most people, and that's why Fox panicked, because Trank was clearly going for that kind of movie. But as it is, it's a 45-minute movie all on its own, with a second part that is almost precisely the same length as the first half. It's an unbelievably short movie that I want to say is missing its second act, but that's not really the case. Again, it's more like two different movies. So if the first half is a Twilight Zone episode, this is a slasher movie, with Doom showing up as fast as humanly possible to walk imposingly down hallways with his creepy green eyes and his environmental suit merged with his body or as they say in this movie, environment suit, killing people with his mind in horrible ways. It is a horror movie, at least until it's suddenly the end of every superhero movie ever, because Trank is out, and that's how these things are supposed to end. I would love to know how he was going to use his big action set pieces that were in the trailer but didn't wind up in the movie. Like I said, it plays like a sequel rather than a continuation of the story that pays off anything from the first act, except the way sequels pay things off. Von Doom becomes Dr. Doom. We're caught up to speed about what our heroes have been doing since the last time we saw them in the theater. I mean, since the time jump. And it really feels like everything started all over again. What was the point of establishing all that character stuff at the beginning, especially going all the way back to Reed and Ben in elementary school, if later we're going to arbitrarily skip a bunch of stuff that was just as reasonable to dramatize? I would be really surprised if there was a time jump in Trank's original version, and if whatever he shot that's still in this half, which doesn't seem to be much at all, didn't originally take place shortly after our heroes got their powers. We have to be caught up to speed on stuff our characters are really worked up about. The thing has been working for the government for a year, but we don't see them convince him to do that. Reed went AWOL, and Sue's angry about it, but we don't see that happen. If this was its own movie, I could understand starting with this status quo, but that's the problem. It's a brand new status quo, and a brand new occasion for story. We have to totally switch gears, and the film really clunkily throws exposition at us, left and right, giving characters exchanges they obviously shouldn't have had before, like Sue talking to her father about Reed leaving. There aren't natural character arcs that go from beginning to end. There are, ostensibly, two sets of them. Tragic ones in the first act, and triumphant ones in the second act. And it's really superficial, because the end of the movie wants to convince the audience it's a real Fantastic Four movie, and that means the big fight with superpowered Doctor Doom, just like in the 05 movie. There's about as much emotional weight as there was in that, but at least Doom seemed like a threat for a minute in that movie, when he froze Reed. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by... Sorry... Wrong line. What happens to rubber when it's super cooled? He's beaten really easily in that, but here it's way worse, and there's no satisfying payoff to anyone's personal journey. Sue's whole thing about pattern recognition is just used as a device so she can find Reed. Nothing more about how Reed was unpredictable and that's why she was interested in him, like momentarily in the first act, or anything about her seeing the world differently. Ben was bullied at one time in his life, and I guess now he gets to do the bullying? He feels strong, but the trade-off is the loss of a normal life. Or something. I don't know. Johnny wants to work for the government and doesn't care that they're going to use him to fight their wars like they're using Ben because he wants to belong to something and because he's an adult and it's his choice to make. That's clearly supposed to be his selfish, dangerous move, like Johnny in the 05 movie with all the endorsements. But there are no consequences for that, and he's not even interested in it anymore when they get back from Planet Zero after obligatorily taking Doom down, somehow. 
you'd think that some of them would have different opinions about what they should do next. Now they've beaten a supervillain, and they all decide simultaneously to keep being a team. Suddenly they're all on the same page, like they all have the same brain. These individual stories that converge as they all become friends, and I do buy them as friends by the time they get the gate to work, that's another thing I like, all become one story in the worst way possible, especially because they're all more divided than ever at the beginning of the second half. They just generically learn the lesson of teamwork, which is not at all what this movie was about before. The other problem with shooting ahead a year is that you have to come up with a believable reason that everything you need to happen next is happening now, and this movie does not do that. Franklin is getting closer to fixing the quantum gate after the last trip busted it up, but he can't finish it without Reed. So Sue is just now putting her brilliant pattern recognition to use to find him. Maybe she needed enough pattern to recognize, and that year gave her that, but it's pretty clear she's never tried before, and that no one's ever asked her. And Sue needs a motivation to agree to this, since she doesn't trust these military types and doesn't like the way they've been using Ben on missions. So Johnny is given something to do suddenly in order to provide that motivation. Now he's going to start working for the military so that she'll want to try to find Reed, to open the gate and reverse their powers so he won't have any reason to do that. The timing is very convenient. Why now? Why not just throw us in the middle of all this? Have that be the reason Sue is looking for Reed, but she's been doing it a long time and she's only just now figured it out. Oh, and the way she finds Reed is stupid. It's an easy payoff to the only real personal moment she and Reed have in the first act. He likes 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and mentioned Captain Nemo. So, of course, Captain Nemo has to be in his computer code, and she finds that while tracking him. Would he really be stupid enough to use that after telling her about his favorite book? It's bad enough the movie can't stick with one focused plot and one clear tone. It also has to treat me like an idiot. The main conflict of this second story is about Reed abandoning the team, again, which we didn't see and don't really know the circumstances of. Presumably he left because he didn't trust the people in charge and he didn't want his technology to get in the wrong hands, which would be understandable, but I'm not sure. Ben is mad because he thinks Reed owes him a cure, just like in the 05 movie. Sue is mad because she just generically feels abandoned. Also sort of like the 05 movie, but for entirely different reasons. But she also should understand because she doesn't like being used by the military, and she's worried about what they've been doing to Johnny. So she and Reed agree on this point. When Ben and Reed finally have their big confrontation, there's no communication. Ben is so mad, he asks for an explanation, and then doesn't give Reed the chance to give one. He just throws punches. Even when Reed has the chance to tell him something, he doesn't give the full explanation, and he never tells any of the team what he's been doing. We know that he's been working on his own quantum gate in the secret, so he didn't abandon them, he's just working away from prying eyes, assuming the reason he's making that is to try to find them a cure. But it's never discussed. And I didn't see how he left, so I don't know why he didn't or couldn't tell them his plans before he ran away, assuming that's why he left in the first place. I just don't know anything! So the others, including Johnny, at least a little, continue to be upset with him for running off until the end when they beat Doom and then everything works out. And then it gets really uncomfortable. We don't just drop the military thing like I thought we might. I wouldn't put that past this hobbled together mess. Where the four beat Doom, go through the portal, and then the movie's over. That would have been a mercy, honestly, given the name the team scene, which belongs in a top ten most cringeworthy scenes in a superhero movie of all time list. But nope. There has to be a quick scene to get the four out from under the government's thumb. 
which they do through threat of force, basically. They lay out their terms. They want their own laboratory, and they don't want to be used for the military's own ends anymore. And the worst actor in the history of generals on screen says, what if we say no? And Johnny's like, say yes. So they do. I guess because the four just took down the most powerful being in the history of ever, and our heroes just take advantage of the fact that they're intimidated. These are our heroes, folks. What great role models. Just appear to be supremely powerful and you can do anything you want. And as long as you're the good guy, it's okay if you answer to no one and have total control over the United States Army. Seriously, this is like Superman at the end of Man of Steel when he drops the satellite in front of that general. It's basically a thinly veiled threat. I can kill you without a thought, so you should maybe do what I say. But I'm the good guy. Speaking of killing folks without a thought... Doom is both insanely powerful and not powerful at all. He seems to have unlimited power. He can make walls explode just by looking at them, and same thing with people's heads. I don't know if Doom has telekinesis or what, but there seems to be no limit to what he can move or blow up with his mind. But when he fights the Fantastic Four, he doesn't even try. The movie doesn't forget what he can do because he does throw rocks and stuff. It just suddenly makes him overwhelmed or not as capable, so it looks like the four together are just as powerful. It's like if at the end of The Matrix, instead of seeing code and being able to manipulate The Matrix, Agent Smith just suddenly started sucking. Reed even says, he's stronger than one of us, but he's not stronger than all of us. What? I'd say he is. We're not told what the limits are to his powers, but I haven't seen any until he just seems to get bored and stops trying. There's no reason any of them should still be alive to even get to this scene. Why doesn't Doom just blow up their heads like he does to Alan? He's got plenty of opportunities. Oh, is it because they got their powers from the same ooze he did? Is that the secret of the ooze? That anything it touches is connected to it? Like one big life force? And he can't kill anything that's part of that? I don't think that's what's going on. He's certainly at least pretending to try to kill them in that big fight. And if he's weaker against them because of that, we're not told. But the movie has given up as much as he has, so there's really no point in belaboring this any further. He's just the Doom from the 05 movie, except less mustache twirly and like 100,000 times more powerful. Except for when he's not. I guess because Doom in the comics has magic and he's supposed to have a lot of power, and this is like the science fiction version of that. To quote Spock, but sarcastically, fascinating. I can't say Doom doesn't have a character motivation, but he's not fleshed out at all. Before or after, he's walking around forever encased in carbonite. I understand what both characters want, but I don't know what leads them there. When Franklin Storm comes to ask Victor to join his team to build the Quantum Gate, which sounds like a blatant Stargate ripoff, I'd have called it something else, we learn that Victor has a really fatalistic view of things, but I don't know much about how he got that way. He thinks Storm is a slave to his company's board. He calls Storm an employee, and he says he is done working for him and his employers. But what exactly happened to him? Why is he so jaded? Why has he left the world, as Storm says? He agrees to work on the gate because Sue is there. So it's starting to feel more like the 05 movie there, too. And also because he doesn't like that Reed fully broke through the interdimensional barrier, able to send things to and from Planet Zero, rather than just sending stuff there. He's condescending and pretends like Reed's theories are crude and childish, but he's just jealous. So he thinks highly of himself, and he wants recognition for his accomplishments. Which we see demonstrated again when he makes the statements about no one remembering the people who built the Apollo rocket that lead Reed to suggest they make the first human jump to the other dimension without permission. 
Since they're finished building the machine, I'm honestly not sure why they're even still allowed in the building. But Victor also doesn't think the world is worth saving and doesn't care at all about what happens to it. I guess this could be an interesting contradiction, where he doesn't like or trust authority and thinks the world is doomed because of what the people on top are doing to it, but his own ego and want to belong somewhere get in the way of that ideology. But it's all just introduced and then it sits there. I just can't get a full picture of who he is and why he's like this. We have a germ of an idea. Let's make that Doom name mean something. So he's like Dr. Doom Sayer. Like he's all about Doom because he thinks the Earth is doomed. For example, I don't know if I buy that he lets the Quantum Gate get in the hands of the company or the government. Maybe he would do that if he just doesn't care about what happens to the planet, but if he hates authority so much, I could just as easily see him sabotaging the project. He works on it long enough to see his research realized and to see Sue, who he never makes a move on and who hardly has any screen time with him at all, and then put some kind of design flaw in the shuttle so it breaks down. I don't know if he hates the corrupt people in charge more than he doesn't care what they do to the planet because he thinks it's inevitable. And then when he becomes Dr. Doom, with the worst setup for that name imaginable when Sue sarcastically calls him Dr. Doom in the lab, ugh, I understand him even less. I'm not even sure if he's a person at this point. His motivation is built on that fatalism from Vignette 1. He's been on Planet Zero for a year, and the green kryptonite ooze has given him unlimited power. He likes it there, even though he's all alone, and there's seemingly nothing to do. He thinks if people from Earth can get there, they'll find a way to screw up his planet, so he decides to destroy the Earth before they can. It's clearly a flimsy excuse to have a raging, all-powerful supervillain try to kill everything in the last 20 minutes, but it's really weird that in this newspaper collage of a movie, this guy actually has a reason for what he's doing. I just don't understand it. I kind of expected him to just try to kill everything without any reason at all. And this is worse because it asks me to care about what he's doing, to think about it, like he has a point or something. Yes, the military in this takes advantage of anything it can use for its own ends, and will use anything it can as leverage to manipulate people. It's really stereotypical, and we've seen it a hundred thousand million times. Same with corporate Stooge Allen, who is really just John Daggett in The Dark Knight Rises because that's every character played by Tim Blake Nelson ever. They promised Ben to help him find a cure in exchange for his help with covert operations. And how long can those missions be covert when they're carried out by a giant rock monster? It's not like he can camouflage himself in the mountains like Gridnak in Galaxy Quest. So Doom is right. These people are going to exploit his dimension any way they can. That's all but said in the first act. Alan doesn't care about saving the world, and he doesn't care about keeping Storm's kids safe, either, which he despicably claims just to get Storm to keep cooperating with him and work on fixing the gate. So, fine. Doom still hates the planet and doesn't think it deserves to continue. He thinks it'll destroy itself, though, so the only reason he gets proactive is because he's afraid his planet is in danger. But why does he care so much about Planet Zero, anyway? Is it just because it's the ultimate place to get away? He wanted to be alone at the beginning of the movie. He seemed to get away from that some when he wanted to be famous for using the quantum gate. But now he's back to that, to the bazillionth power. What did the green stuff do to him exactly? It's kept him alive and given him powers, but has it gotten into his head? It didn't get into the other characters' heads when they were exposed to it. Maybe you have to get that much in you and be affected by a large quantity of it for a long time. I don't know, is this even Von Doom anymore, or is it the green slime possessing him and maybe tapping into his memories for a justification for genocide? If that's not the case, again, what has he been doing there all this time? 
He doesn't talk about how great the green stuff is, or what it is, or anything. I'm so sick of knowing nothing about anything in this movie. It's like if you saw John Osterman from Watchmen get turned into Dr. Manhattan, and then you didn't see him again until he was on Mars, making his big glass palace. And if he didn't explain anything, except to say that he didn't need people anymore because they were insignificant to him. If he just seemed like this weird guy who likes being bored on Mars, and thinks people suck. With none of the exploitation, or the heartbreak, or Laurie not understanding the non-linear way he sees the world, or anything. I get that this happened because so many different people were involved in trying to fix a perceived mess. But you'd think at some point someone would say, you know, this really needs an explanation someplace. Ah, still have way too much to say. There's just so much stuff that doesn't make any sense, or is super awkward, or doesn't fit with anything else in the movie. I feel like I could talk about this until the next review is supposed to come out. But then, that review will never happen, so I should probably try to wrap things up. I'm gonna end this review with a little game I call, you know what's irritating? It's really simple. I'm gonna name a bunch of things that irritate me in this movie, and you can leave a comment and tell me if it irritates you too. And feel free to mention other irritating things, or things you like. I'd love to know if there are things that people like that didn't make my things I actually like list. Okay, here goes. Uh, hey, you know what's irritating? When a high school science teacher sees the most astounding quantum physics demonstration in history, and he disqualifies the student who made it for doing a magic trick. This is the ultimate example of someone in a movie seeing something impossible and just dismissing it out of hand. Reed makes a model airplane disappear, reappear, fries it, brings it back with sand all over it, and accidentally shatters the backboard of a basketball goal. Luckily, no one was standing under that. And the teacher is just like, this is a science fair, not a magic show. That is a super elaborate magic trick, just to impress some judges at a high school science fair, dude. I especially like the backboard touch. The judge acts like somehow breaking the board is what proves it's a magic trick. When he tells Reed he's going to have to pay for that, would he have believed it more if there was no side effect? If the plane just disappeared and reappeared? If that's all he did, that looks like a magic trick. He's going to feel really stupid when Reed is a billionaire and he's still judging high school science fairs. And possibly teaching elementary school? I can't tell if he's the same jerk teacher from the 2007 flashback who tells Reed then, a little kid, that he needs to think of a real-world occupation rather than scientist, and that he shouldn't have dreams, like trying to build a teleporter, because it'll never happen. I think this is the same guy, and he thinks Reed's a loser. He's either an elementary school teacher, brought in to judge a science fair, probably because they're short-staffed since he clearly knows nothing about science, or he's moving up grades along with Reed. Either way, again, assuming that is the same guy, he seems really pathetic. And just a year after this movie came out, scientists managed to beam a particle of light from one place to another. I mean, yeah, that hadn't happened yet, and the scene takes place in 2007, but really? That far into the 21st century, and we've got a teacher telling a little kid about how much isn't possible with science? I cannot tell you how much this movie rubbed me the wrong way, right out the gate, with these two scenes. Right out the quantum gate. Speaking of, you know what's irritating? Using a chimp in a test launch for like 30 seconds, getting no information about the other dimension whatsoever, and then sending people over. I realize our protagonist went over wasted and unauthorized, but Alan planned on sending a human team as the very next step. That's why our heroes were in a hurry to go. Uh, maybe send a mechanical probe? A drone? The military in Stargate was smart enough to think of that. They send in a robotic drone as soon as they open the gate, rather than throwing people over right away to see what's over there, and if the air is breathable, and all that. 
I guess since the chimp doesn't die right away, it's perfectly safe. Yeah, they have a video feed, but shouldn't they take some samples first? If they had, they'd know about the secret of the ooze. Oh, hey, you know what's irritating? Interdimensional green goo that does whatever the script needs it to. Since we're going to another dimension instead of space in this one, I wonder how the movie would handle giving the four their superpowers instead of cosmic rays. It's hard to come up with something that gives people entirely different abilities without it coming off hokey, but this movie doesn't even try. It's like Smallville Kryptonite, and it's green no less. Mix it with anything and it creates different properties. Mix it with rocks and you're a rock creature. Mix it with fire and you're flaming on. Mix it with nothing and your limbs stretch. Send a shockwave that sends it through an interdimensional portal where there's another person there and they turn invisible and have force fields. Really? We don't even send Sue there? We just lazily find a way to give her powers anyway? Oh, you know what else is irritating? Super inconsistent visual effects. The thing looks great. He needs pants, but I always buy that CG and I like how expressive the face is. Sue's force fields look fine too. You know what doesn't? Anytime we use green screen. At all. Some of the worst chroma keying I've ever seen in anything. The green lava stuff is pretty rough when our characters are running away from it before they get their powers. And Reed turning his disguised face into his real face, that was one of the most embarrassing things I've seen on a big screen. Reed being able to shapeshift is a good idea, and it maybe makes the stretching powers seem less silly. I would have maybe made shapeshifting the primary thing he does and had him stretch a couple times when it made sense, but his being stretched out after the incident in the lab is pretty disconcerting. The body horror stuff works pretty well with that power. The effect isn't great there either, but it's nothing compared to that face shift. Yeah. Oh, here's a minor but irritating thing. When they meet at the science fair, Franklin Storm tells Reed they've figured out how to send matter to the other dimension, but not how to bring it back. But he also has sand from the other dimension. Now, maybe he means he can send something, but he can't bring back that same thing. But that's not what it sounds like. I guess the idea is maybe that they can only keep the doorway open long enough to do one thing, but not two things. But I'm not sure. I also don't know if I buy that Reed solved that problem without even realizing he was sending things to and from another dimension. Oh, hey, you know what's irritating? Environment suits. Who says environment suits? I've only ever heard environmental suits. You know what else is irritating? Establishing the Baxter building, but not putting our heroes in it at the end. I mean, if you're going to ruin whatever Trank was doing to make it more like the Fantastic Four, you might as well go all the way. It's awkward the first act when Ben tells Reed that he's never going to leave the Baxter building, even though home is only 40 minutes away, because he belongs there. I actually like that exchange a lot. But then we never go back there, and the FF remain in hiding at the end, even though they can do anything they want because they've strong-armed the government to do their bidding. I'm not sure why it doesn't go all the way to make them public superheroes, since Fox is trying to appease the fans with so much else, and that would at least be a payoff. And you know what's really irritating? Everything about that last scene. I mentioned this earlier, but I have to break it down some. Reed says they need a name, because there's four of us, and we need a name! What is there being four of you have to do with the idea of naming the team? Except to force a reason for someone to think of Fantastic Four. And then, Ben says the word Fantastic, again, kind of for no reason. Reed tells him, we've come a long way from the garage. And Thing says, I gotta say, it's Fantastic. What's Fantastic? Your powers that keep you in pain all the time? The lab you're looking at? It's really awkward. As are all the joke names they throw out. How about the Human Torch and the Torchettes? Ha ha ha. And then Reed vetoes that like it's a serious suggestion. 
oh my god, who wrote this? That scene docks at a point five all by its lonesome. And finally, a related irritating thing, why doesn't Ben want to be changed back anymore? Why don't any of them? Is it just because they realize they're perceived as invincible if they're all together? That's really how it plays at the end. Together, they're gods, so they keep their powers and they form a team. I don't even know what this team is going to do, except, uh, more science. Save the world with research and something with their powers that they don't talk about. Yeah, they probably become superheroes, but there is no plan, and it's awkward. I'd think Reed would build another machine and try to find an antidote now that they no longer have to contend with Victor. We may never know what Trank's original vision was, but it's hard not to tell Fox they were insane for releasing this monstrosity over whatever that was. Almost everything I like is setup stuff that's ruined by an ending that doesn't just belong to a different movie, it arguably is a different movie, until the last 20 minutes. Until the last 20 minutes, it honestly didn't seem as bad as I remembered it. But then I started writing about it, and I just couldn't stop. It's not the worst superhero movie ever made, but it hardly counts as a movie at all. Although, I will say it's still technically more of a movie than Turbo, a Power Rangers movie. I'm going to give it a score, because I always do, but it feels like grading an unfinished paper. I want to cop out and give it an incomplete, but as much potential as I think this really does have, I have to go with a 1 out of 4. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Sure hope you enjoyed it. Join me again tomorrow for another episode of the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. We are getting down to the wire now. If you'd like to support Geekvolution and Superhero Rewind, go to patreon.com slash geekvolution, and for just $2 a month, you can get regular early episodes, three days early, in fact, of Superhero Rewind and Science Fiction Rewind, and you can also get access to my and Eric's uncensored talk show twice a month, Geekvolution After Dark. At the $50 tier, you can request a review on Superhero Rewind or Science Fiction Rewind. You can either do that regularly or you can just go in and pledge one time. And I will review whatever you're interested in in either of those categories as soon as humanly possible. And I'd also like to say thanks to all of our $10 Patreon producers. And here they are. Dylan Mushtiello, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpie's Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael, Mark, Micheletti, Carl Maxey, Dimitri J, John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartage Govind Singh, Ethan, Gui D, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf, Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. Thanks once again for listening, everybody. See you again tomorrow. I am Captain Logan.